awesome. A um, couple things it is. I hate you all. <laughs> uh, Jesus loves you guys. Um, yeah, oh man. What was the USC shirt about? That's where I was going to go to film school while well, I was living in LA. So I had that. So I bought that from when I was in LA. Okay. Um, we're getting past all that. And we're going to polish off Romans tonight. Uh, Lord. Um, uh, say a prayer. It's always, this is a bittersweet night, not because of my birthday. I'm trying not to think about that at all, but because, um, one, it's always disturbing for me to look out and see. I, I just see some people um, who are not with us tonight that are, you know, are struggling with addiction and always just be praying for them. It's just always disturbing to see some of the guys I usually see, and they're not here and um, for whatever reason, and I just, when we started Revolution, um, the reason we decided to plant another church was not because we didn't think there were enough, you know, um, congregations in Portsmouth, but because we didn't see any church really intentionally going after um, a couple of groups of people, uh, one of them being college students who were saying goodbye to some of them, been around since if not the beginning, close to the beginning. Um, Ray Noble was part of my first small group, you know, at, at Revolution. Um, and so that, that's bittersweet to see them go. Uh, I pray that they go on and do just great things for the kingdom. Um, and I have confidence that, that, that they will. Um, it's just also disturbing every week when you don't see some people here who are struggling with addiction. That's another group that we wanted to reach out to, the people on the streets uh, of Portsmouth who really have nothing, you know, to give a church from kind of the church growth mentality, right? If you're looking at who's going to give money, who's going to volunteer, who's going to do that, instead of just looking to how can we reach people for the glory and honor of Jesus Christ. And, I, and I'm not being self-righteous. I understand that, you know, there, there is a place for churches reaching, you know, young families and people with jobs, and everybody needs the gospel, and that's great. But we just saw a need to reach people that weren't being reached. And it's been a really cool ride. Uh, I pray God continues to give us that. But I'm always, every time I walk in, there's been two or three Sundays when I've walked in here a couple times where Marsh House has been on lockdown for something or something like that. And just keep those guys uh, in prayer. Um, let's polish off Romans, shall we? So if you've got a, um, your own Bible, we're going to Romans 15. Uh, if, however, you're using one of the blue Bibles there, um, the blue Bibles 
uh, are there for you to take, by the way. If you do not have a Bible of your own or if the Bible you have is just too hard to read, then we recommend this one. And so we'll kick off on page 683 in the Blue Bibles. We'll look at Romans 15, 14. We're going to make a quick run through the end of chapter 16. So we're covering a lot, but there's not a lot of exposition, not a lot of explanation. We'll just talk about some of the application. Um, so let's jump right in 1514. Here we go. I, this is Paul, am fully convinced, my dear brothers and sisters, that you are full of goodness. You know these things so well you can teach each other all about them. Even so, I have been bold enough to write about some of these points, knowing that all you need is this reminder. For by God's grace... I am a special messenger from Christ Jesus to you Gentiles. I bring you the good news so that I might present you as an acceptable offering to God made holy by the Holy Spirit. So he's writing to Rome and he says, look, I know you guys are already full of goodness because the Holy Spirit is, is within you. I know that I'm writing to people who are already saved. And so you can ask yourself why it is that for 16 chapters, Paul has preached grace in the gospel to people who are already saved, people who have already, you know, been accepted by God. And the reason is this, and this is one of the reasons we, we built revolution, the motto we have built revolution is that we believe the gospel needs to be preached every single week. The gospel needs to be preached not just to people who have never heard about Jesus, but to people who even claim to follow Jesus, because it is so easy to lose sight of what we are really here for, how we came to be reconciled to God and what our lives are supposed to be. One of the complaints I had when I was on staff at churches in Texas and New York and West Virginia and here is that you know, it's, 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 it's all well and good to talk about how to raise godly children, how to get along with people, how to have, God, you know, how to have good finances. All, that, that's all well and good. But if the gospel is not preached at the very center of everything you do, it will become murky, it will become lost... And eventually people will even forget it. They will not even know what they believe. I was on staff at one church where I actually asked people. Uh, these were people handpicked by the staff um, as mature leaders in the church. I said, what is the gospel? Not one of them could tell me. Now that's disturbing to me, but that's not that uncommon. Right? And it's not just some, you know, some you know, screaming evangelical like me that believes that. That's what Paul is saying here. But I write to remind you, even though he knows that they are saved. And he gives credit to who? To the Holy Spirit. It is not just that Paul or, or, or Paulus or whoever preached to these people and they preached such a great message that the people said, oh, you know, we've got to get saved. Because let me tell you right now, great messages, and, and every preacher should work hard to do an excellent job for God. I believe that. Great messages do not save people. The Holy Spirit saves people. Verse 17. So I have reason to be enthusiastic about all Christ Jesus has done through me in my service to God. Yet I dare not boast about anything except what Christ has done through me, bringing the Gentiles to God by my message and by the way I worked among them. They were convinced by the power of miraculous signs and wonders and by the power of God's Spirit. In this way, I have fully presented the good news of Christ from Jerusalem all the way 
they look at him. So he's, he's, he's preached the gospel everywhere he has gone. We, this morning in the free seminary class, we covered Acts 28, where the Holy Spirit drives Paul even to an island in the middle of nowhere to preach the gospel to them because they hadn't heard it. Everywhere Paul goes, he preaches the gospel. Verse 20, my ambition has always been to preach the good news where the name of Christ has never been heard. I hope and pray that's your ambition as well. Rather than where a church has already been started by someone else. I have been following the plan spoken of in the scriptures where it says, those who have never been told about him will see and those who have never heard of him will understand. In fact, my visit to you has been delayed so long because I have been preaching in in, in these places. But now I have finished my work in these regions and after all these long years of waiting, I am eager to visit you. I am planning to go to Spain. Now, Spain in that time was not like today, right? People go to Spain and Portugal today. It's a modern Western country, you know, and you go there and there are churches everywhere. At this time, Spain is a backwater filled with uneducated pagans and hillbillies, i.e. anything south of Charleston, West Virginia. So... He says, I am planning to go to Spain, and when I do, I will stop off in Rome. And after I have enjoyed your fellowship for a little while, you can provide for my journey. He's saying, you are going to give me money to go and preach the gospel. He does not have a problem with that. We get really weirded out about money, largely because, I think, for two reasons in the church. One is because we've had so many scandals with idiots scamming people for money. And the other is, I think, we waste way too much money on ourselves. Right? Paul didn't have that problem. When you got people meeting in, in house churches and all that kind of stuff, and he's saying, look, I need some money to feed myself while I go preach the gospel to these pagans in Spain. You need to give it to me to get this done. Either that or you go yourself. That's how it works. 25. But before I come, I must go to Jerusalem to take a gift to the believers there. For you see, the believers in Macedonia and Achaia have eagerly taken up an offering for the poor among the believers in Jerusalem. The, in irony of ironies, non-Jews were feeding Jews back in Israel because Christian Jews in Israel had been cut off for their faith in Jesus Christ. And in an agricultural society, if you get blackballed, you cannot sell your crops. If you cannot sell your crops, you do not have money, Right? And so in order to take care of these people, Paul has been making sure that they have the money to eat and and take care of their children. They were glad to do this because they feel they owe a real debt to them. Since the Gentiles received the spiritual blessings of the good news from the believers in Jerusalem, they feel the least they can do in return is to help them financially. And as soon as I have delivered this money and completed this good deed of theirs, I will come to see you on my way to Spain. And I am sure that when I come, Christ will richly bless our time together. Dear brothers and sisters, I urge you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to join in my struggle by praying to God for me. Do this because of your love for me, given to you by the Holy Spirit. Pray that I will be rescued from those in Judea who refuse to obey God. Pray also that the believers there will be willing to accept the donation I am taking to Jerusalem. Then by the will of God, I will be able to come to you with a joyful heart and we will be an encouragement to each other. And now may God, who gives his peace, be with you all. Amen. Now that's how he finishes his message to them. But then he goes on. And he says, now you may wonder as I'm reading this. He's about to say hello and pass his greeting on to a number of people that he knows in Rome. And your question is, if he's never been there, how does he know these people? Right? 
He knows these people through a couple of different ways. One is that there was this time when um, Jews were actually kicked out of Rome. All Jews and Christians were actually, and Jewish Christians were kicked out of Rome by the emperor because they were having theological disagreements. I know it's hard to imagine people of God arguing with one another, but because they were arguing with one another, the Roman emperor said, this is enough, you're out, and it scattered them among the empire, and these people probably came into contact with Paul that way. And, now they have, and later Nero allowed them back in, and so now they're back in Rome. 16.1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who was a deacon in the church of Sincrea. Welcome her in the Lord as one who is worthy of honor among God's people. Help her in whatever she needs, for she has been helpful to me, to many, and especially to me. Now, in all likelihood, Phoebe is the one bringing this letter. Right? There is no post office. There is no FedEx, UPS, or any of that kind of stuff in ancient Rome. If you wanted a letter carried, you had to give it to the person, they had to get on a boat or on a horse, and they had to take it to that person and hand deliver it. Phoebe would deliver this letter for Paul. Now, when a person delivered a letter, they were then they would help explain the letter. One of the things that would happen if you delivered a letter because you were probably there when it was written is people would ask you, hey, what did Paul mean by this? What did, and so Phoebe would help explain that. Whatever that does to your theology of women in ministry, whatever. Now, verse 3, give my greetings to Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in the ministry of Christ Jesus. In fact, they once risked their lives for me. I am thankful to them, and so are all the Gentile churches. Also, give my greetings to the church that meets in their home. Greet my dear friend, Epinetus. He was the first person from the province of Asia to become a follower of Christ. Give my greeting to Mary, who has worked so hard for your benefit. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who are in prison with me. They are highly respected among the apostles and became followers of Christ before I died. Now, that line there is debated heavily. And I don't have time to go into it tonight, but whether or not, you know, it says Andronicus and Junia, Junia is the name of a woman, whether they are well known among the apostles or whether they are all called apostles or, or whether Paul, when he calls them apostles, just means they're sent to preach the gospel and not in the official sense he uses is debated. I have no idea where to land on that. It's just where it is and you just work out your own salvation on it, right? Greet uh, Ampliatus, my dear friend in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ, and my dear friend Stachys. Greet Apellus, a good man whom Christ approves. And give my greetings to the believers from the household of Aristobulus. And greet Herodian, my fellow Jew. Greet the Lord's people from the household of, of Narcissus. And give my greetings to Tryphena and Tryphosa. Twins, do you see that? In all likelihood, they were Twins. The Lord's workers and dear Perseus, who has worked so hard for our Lord. Greet Rufus, sounds like a blues player, whom the Lord picked out to be his very own. And also his dear mother, who has been a mother to me. Think of having that reputation, to be like a mother to the Apostle Paul. And give my greetings to Asnicritus and, 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 and Philagon and, and Hermes and Patrobus. Hermas and, the and their brothers and sisters who meet with them. Give my greetings to Philologus and Julia, Nereus and his sister, and to Olympus and all the believers who meet with them. Greet each other in Christian love. 
all the churches of Christ send you their greetings. These are all friends of Paul, right? We'll talk about that in a minute. And now I make one more appeal, my dear brothers and sisters. Watch out for people who cause divisions and upset people's faith by teaching things contrary to what you have been taught. Stay away from them. Such people are not serving Christ our Lord. They are serving their own personal interests. By smooth talk and glowing words, they deceive innocent people. <clears throat> Joel Osteen. But everyone knows that you are obedient to the Lord. And this makes me very happy. I want you to be wise in doing right and to stay innocent of any wrong. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, sends you his greetings, as do Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, my fellow Jews. I, Tertius, the one writing this letter for Paul, send my greetings to as one of the Lord's followers. Paul, in all likelihood, was nearly blind, so he had to dictate this to someone. And Tertius is the one who writes it down. Gaius says hello to you. He is my host and also serves as host to the whole church. House church, right? Erastus, the city treasurer, sends you his greetings, and so does our brother Cortus. Now, all glory to God, who is able to make you strong, just as my good news says. This message about Jesus Christ has revealed his plans for you Gentiles. A plan kept secret from the beginning of time. But now as the prophets foretold and as the eternal God has commanded, this message is made known to all Gentiles everywhere so that they too might believe and obey him. All glory to the only wise God through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. So this has been the book of Romans. And the only thing I could think of and when I looked through this is, what do I talk about here? And I think I'm going to talk about this. How is it that these people became friends with Paul? And what does it mean to be a real friend with someone? If you're, if you're like me, you've had friends come and go. You've had friends betray you. You've had friends blindside you. You've had friends who just disappeared. What is friendship? How can we have True friendship. Let's pray and then we'll talk about it. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word, for your, the letter that you inspired Paul to write that was dictated by this man that we know nothing about, Tertius, who was carried by Phoebe to the churches in Rome and, and read there and explained there. And, and, and I, I can't imagine they had any idea that 2,000 years later, it would be speaking to us. But that's what your word does. That's what you're so powerful that you can speak through someone. They may not even know that you're speaking through them. And thousands of years later, it's still having an eternal impact. You are all powerful. And we need your guidance. Guide us now in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my favorite stories about friendship is by Mickey Mantle. Now... For those of you um, who don't follow sports, and there are quite a few of you here, you also wear skinny jeans and listen to all indie rock. Um, Mickey Mantle was one of the greatest baseball players of all time. <laughs> I can't even see you, but I hear it's Caleb. Yeah, um, but 
um, Mickey Mantle is one of the greatest baseball players of all time. And he used to tell this story about why he thought Billy Martin, who was one of his uh, uh, managers and friends, was the greatest manager in the history of baseball, why he could be trusted. He used to say, Billy Martin is the kind of guy that, you know, if the entire team felt it had to jump off a bridge, Billy would be the first one to go, right? He was that kind of manager and, and friend. So he tells a story about after he had retired, after Mickey Mantle retired, he unfortunately played for the Yankees, which is Satan's baseball team. And he, after he retired from the Yankees, and he moved back home to, um, to Oklahoma. And he was in Oklahoma, and he got a call that Billy was now in Dallas. Billy had been hired to manage you know, the Texas Rangers. And so he drove down to see Billy. And Billy was really excited because Billy had never like lived in like the South that much. He never really experienced you know, the culture of like gun racks and all that kind of stuff. And so he, you know, he moves down to Texas, and somebody as kind of a welcome to Dallas, this is why I love Texas, a welcome to Dallas, they give him a rifle. Right? Isn't that awesome? And so he goes to Dallas. They give him a rifle. And he's never, he's never used a rifle, right? And he's like, I want to go hunting. How do I go hunting, Mickey? And he's like, Mickey Mantle's like, okay, I've got a friend. He's a buddy of mine. He's a doctor who treated me. Mickey Mantle had all kinds of physical problems his entire career. He said, I know a doctor, a specialist down in San Antonio. He's got a huge ranch outside the city. He lets me go down there and deer hunt. I bet if we jumped in our cars and drove down there, if I, you know, if I ask him face to face, he'll let us go hunting. And you can break in your rifle. And so, you know, they drive down, and it's a pretty long drive from Dallas to San Antonio. They get there early in the morning, and Mickey Mantle, you know, knocks on the door, and the doctor comes out. Billy Martin is still in the car. And so the doctor says, hey, Mickey, what's going on? What can I do for you? He said, I've got my friend Billy Martin in the car. He's never hunted before. I was going to take him hunting. Would you mind if we go hunting on your land? And the doctor says, absolutely, Mickey, anything for you. You go right ahead. I just want to ask you one favor, though. I have this mule. And I've had this mule for a long time. And as stupid as it sounds, I have grown to love this mule. And, but it's really sick. And the vet has said, I really need to put it down. I have not got the heart to shoot this thing. Will you please just put it down for me? And Mickey's like, man, I came down here to hunt deer. I don't want to shoot your mule, man. That's just not, you know. And it's like, please, you'd be doing me a huge favor, Mickey, if you just go do it. And Mickey's like, oh, okay, okay, yeah, I'll take care of it. Tells him where it is in the barn and everything. He's like, all right, all right. And so he goes back and he decides on his walk back to the car that he'll play a trick on Billy. And so he walks up to the car and says, come on, Billy, come with me, quick. And Billy's like, what's going on? Guy told me we couldn't hunt here. I've given that guy, I don't know how much money and medical bills, and he told me we couldn't hunt here. So I tell you what we're going to do. We're going to go in that barn. I'm going to shoot his mule. <laughs> and Billy Martin's like, man, you can't shoot a guy's mule. What's wrong with you? Right? And he's like, Billy, I'm shooting this mule. You coming with me or not? And Billy's like, all right, man, you can shoot the mule. I'll come with you. So he walks into the barn, and Mickey Mouse is trying to control his mind. He walks up, and he shoots the mule. And he just like turns around to look at Billy and see what Billy's expression is like, and he hears another bang. And Billy goes, I shot his cow, too. So... <laughs> Now that's a friend, right? <laughs> uh, I think most of us would say that's a friend, right? That's, there's a guy that's all in, man. Um, that's how we define it. It's kind of like loyalty, the kind of guy who just do something really stupid with you. You know, I've had one of those friends for years. Um, Steve Hamilton, you know, and I grew up together, and I, Steve was best man at my wedding, and, and you know, we graduated a year apart. 
We were good friends. Even when I moved off to L.A., we'd talk on the phone about once a month or so. And, you know, Steve and I used to do this thing called mailbox baseball when we were in high school, right? And if you've never heard of mailbox baseball, what you do is, and please understand, please quote me correctly on your blogs, I am not advocating this, I'm just stating this is what I used to do long before I became a Christian, right? All right, so we used to play mailbox baseball, and we would always go and we would play mailbox baseball, and we'd play in Wheelersburg where we were from, and, and we would go up, and what you would do is you would, you would sit in the car, right, you'd get up in the window, and you'd take a baseball bat, and you'd come up to a mailbox, and you'd hit the mailbox, and depending on whether or not you knocked it off, whether you, you know, I used to be able to take Daily Times things and just spin them up in the air, and if you did something like that, you did a single, double, triple, whatever, right, and so you get up there, and you get your bats, and if you, if you miss or, or whatever, then you're out, and that kind of stuff, so we used to play mailbox baseball, and there's this one circle drive in Wheelersburg, um, I think it's called Clover Lane, I think, and it's, it's just like this, and so Steve was sitting in the back, and I'm up to bat, and we're coming around, and a, and a guy was driving who will remain nameless, because I don't know what the statute of limitations is on this, and so he's driving, and he guns it as we're going around, and we literally go up on two wheels. I'm sitting in the window. Now, if you're, the car goes like this, and you're sitting in the window, what happens? You go out the window, right? And so we're going like 40 miles an hour around this, say 40, 50 miles an hour, Steve jumps up and grabs me. And I know he grabbed me because I was falling out, and then all of a sudden I'm just watching the pavement go like this, right? And so finally the car comes and it slams down on all fours after he sends the brakes, and we sit there, and like teenage boys do in a mature fashion, we just start giggling our butts off, right? <laughs> I nearly die, we nearly wreck a car, and we're just laughing, right? And that's who it is. And, and, and to this day, Steve saved my life. And he's just, that's, that's how we define good friends, right? People who do the stupid things with us, they're always there for us. They never leave us. Steve and I are still friends. He's in my small group right here at Revolution. And, and so that's how we define a good friend. But how does the Bible define a good friend? Because here's the thing, even the best friends you've ever had, even those friends, Mickey Mantle and Billy Martin, me and Steve, whatever, they're not perfect friends, right? You can have good friends. It's very hard to have great friends. Great friends are those that selflessly give, expecting nothing in return. Great friends are those that don't manipulate you to get what they want. You have, you have those friends who just like talk and talk about their problems, and then when you start to talk about their problems, like, oh, yeah, I got to go. Right? We're not talking about those kind of friends. Truly great friends. Now, Tim Keller, who, who's one of my favorite preachers in the world, he preaches in New York City, and he, he preached a sermon on friendship that literally I thought, when I was thinking about going through this, and I was looking, I thinking, okay, I, I really need to talk about friendship here. Um, I, I, I really thought about just playing his podcast, because he says it better than anybody could say it. And he breaks down friendship from the Bible this way. He says that, he reminds us this. He says, number one, friendship is absolutely unique. It's a unique relationship. You think about this, right? All our other relationships are based on what? One, DNA. We're born into it, right? You don't choose your family, right? I mean, how many of you, if you could choose your family, would choose every member of the family you've got? Right? All of you, I don't care, you can, you, 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 the, the holiest of you have at least got one cousin that's like, oh, I'd, I'd trade that person for somebody, right? You, it's, it's based on DNA. You can't help that. You're born into it. So you're born into a family relationship. What about your spouse, your boyfriend, your girlfriend? Did you really choose that person? Do you really choose who you're attracted to? Who you think is hot? 
right? Have you ever had that where it's like five years down the road after a relationship, you're like, what was I thinking, right? You don't control that, right? It's all these, I mean, you just don't. You're attracted to who you're attracted to for, for whatever weird reason and that pops up. That's just the way it is. But friends, you choose friends. You choose your friends. And friendship is always a relationship. As Tim Keller says, his second point was friendship is absolutely unique and it's always based on something other than like, you know, true friendship. I'm not talking about people you just go went to school with and you just happen to be in the same class. I mean, true friends, it's always based on something more than just, you know, you're around them, right? It's always based on something. You always have some kind of common interest. You always have some kind of common goal. You always share something. And true friendship, as Keller defines it also, is unique in the sense that it has to stand the test of time. It has to go through the fire, and it has to be completely honest. True friendship is based on honesty. You've got to be able to, to talk to people in an honest way. Now, if you look at your friendships, how many of you have your friends who hit that on every level? I mean, you, you hit that biblical definition of friendship that, you, you, you know, you're, 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 this person is somebody not just that you're related to, that you have to be around, that this is a person that you truly share something in common, and this is a person that's been battle-tested, and you've gone through the fire together, and you're honest with each other, you never lie to each other, you don't manipulate each other, you don't use each other. See, I'm not sure I've ever had that kind of friendship. I love Steve, and Steve's a good friend. And Steve helped me through some of the darkest times of my life. But he and I, have, you know, we've, we've had our share of, you know, rivalry over girls, that kind of thing, where we probably weren't totally up and up with one another, right? You have those things. You have rivalries, especially guys. I don't know how many fist fight Steve and I have been in with each other. How many times have we punched each other? Right? We're best friends and we've literally beaten the crap out of each other I don't know how many times. Right? Just dumb. We had a good friendship. We don't have a perfect friendship. We don't have the kind of friendship based on the kind of love that the Bible describes as selfless. Now the, the way Keller got to that biblical definition of friendship is this. In John 15, Jesus says that those who are his followers, those who have faith in him, are his friends. Now, that doesn't make much sense. Because we don't, as I said last week, we don't give anything to Jesus Christ at all. There is nothing that anybody here can give to Jesus that he doesn't already have. He owns the entire universe. He has perfect relationship with the Father and the Spirit. So there is nothing that we can give him. Even when we worship here in a few minutes, about five minutes we're going to stand up and we're going to sing to Jesus Christ. But you know what? He has a chorus of angels to do that all the time. And as good as Ryan and Caleb is, I'm not sure if they want to take on angels in a battle of bands. Right? So what can we give him? We don't give him, but yet we're, he calls us friends. We can't do anything for him. And in fact, 
We spit at his face every time we sin. Every time we sin, it is always a sin first and foremost against Jesus Christ. We may lie to a friend. We may hurt a spouse. We may hurt a family member. But that's not the first sin we commit. Anytime we do that, first and foremost, we have committed a sin against Jesus Christ. Because he created us. And anytime we sin, we say, you're not Lord, I am. And we rob him of his Godship and his Lordship. And we turn our backs on him. And we sin constantly. And yet he calls us friends. And more than that, if you want to talk about selfless, giving love and something in common, what we have in common is we're going to live forever together in a redeemed universe. Those who follow Jesus Christ are are part of a plan of redemption. We get to be part of saving the universe by simply following him. And selfless giving and love. The reason he goes to the cross is to save us. It's not just to be our example. It's not just to expose the totalitarian regime of Rome. All those things may be true. But Jesus goes to the cross first and foremost to pay the penalty for our sins for us. And when he goes to the cross, it is not just the whipping, it is not just the spitting, it is not just the beating, and it is not just the nails. Okay, that suffering was horrible, but that suffering is not the worst thing that Jesus felt on the cross. Look, if, if, if it is all about the amount of suffering, there have been people who have suffered in, in, in history more than Jesus. Right? I don't know. I mean, I'm not trying to get political, but I used to work on Capitol Hill, and I got to know John McCain's story. You know, the guy who ran for president a few years ago. He spent how many years in the Hanoi Hilton? Five, seven? They beat him daily. There have been people who have suffered worse than Jesus did on the cross physically. But no one suffered worse than Jesus did on the cross spiritually. Because he took our sins upon himself. He took the punishment for all of those sins upon himself. And when he did that, he screamed, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And at that moment, what he was the reason he screamed that, he was not just quoting scripture, he was ripped from the very presence of the Father and the Spirit for the only time in history. Because God is a holy God and he will not be in the presence of sin. And so when Jesus takes that sin upon himself, he is totally isolated. He is totally abandoned. He is. I don't know if the, if the, you know, the, the, the fathers, the, some of them, the church fathers say that Jesus descended into hell. I'm not sure if that's true, but one thing is for sure. At that moment, he absorbed hell. He went through hell on our behalf. Jesus lost the friendship of the Father and the Spirit in order to gain the friendship of those who spit in His face. That's true friendship based in pure love. And it's only because Jesus lost the friendship of the Father and the Spirit on our behalf that we can have friendship with God and with each other. True friendship. It is only when the gospel of Jesus Christ truly sinks deep within 
that we can live a life of gratitude and worship so that we can give ourselves freely, so that we can love people who, who have nothing in common other than they need to know Jesus Christ and that we can just give and give and give and be honest with and suffer through whatever they are going through. When Jesus Christ commands those who follow him to love your neighbor as yourself, he is telling you to take care of people who you're suffering around you to make their suffering your suffering. And to be honest enough with them that you tell them that they are sinners in need of a Savior. That's friendship. That's real friendship. You know, and this is how I quit. Isn't it weird that we even desire friendship? Isn't it strange that we want friends like Billy Martin that we want friends who automatically lurch and grab you when you start to fall out of the window, that we want those kind of friends? If we're just, the, if we're just products of evolution, what sense does that make? Right? I guess an evolutionary biologist say, well, we, we need to be part of a pack. We feel the evolutionary need to be part of a pack so that we can feed each other and, and take care of each other. Would you trust any of your friends to feed you and take care of you? Right? I don't know if I would trust, I don't trust my best friend to show up to Applebee's on time. Right? I don't think that's it. We have this innate emotional desire to be in community with people who love us and who we can love. And you know why I think that is? I think that is part of what has been wired within us. When God created mankind before before sin entered this creation, he created us to love each other purely, to love him. He created us to be for friendship. He created us for that purpose. And I think we long for it, and we can't get exactly what we want because it's marred by sin. But it points to something that will happen one day. Because Jesus Christ lost the friendship of the Father and the Spirit on the cross, paying the penalty for our sins, enabling us to have an eternity with God, one day we will have pure friendship. One day Jesus will return, and we will have pure friendship with each other and with God. We will love each other selflessly. We will never be lonely. That's part of, in Revelation, that's what part of what God promises in the new heavens and the new earth. And he will wipe away every tear, right? And that all the, the things like loneliness and evil and pain will go away and we will have this together as one. In fact, the very first thing Jesus does, and you've heard me say this again and again over the last three years at Revolution because it is the one thing I look forward to more than anything else. The first thing Jesus does after he judges everybody is he throws a party. It's my kind of savior. A messianic banquet. And Isaiah says... Sorry, vegetarians. Endless supply of beef. Yes. <laughs> right? That's, I cannot wait for that. To be at this huge table, this messianic banquet together, with true friendship, all made possible by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Until then, until then we struggle with sin. But the only way we can be friends and love each other as friends is to do what Paul does and keep preaching that gospel even to those who are saved, to keep growing closer to God, to become more grateful every day for what God has done for us. When that becomes more real, the deeper that sinks into our heart, the more we can know true friendship. Let's pray.
Father God, thank you so much for losing friendship to give us friendship. Thank you so much that you've given us this desire to love one another, to be loved, to share your kingdom, to be honest with each other, to have those, to weep when when we weep, to, to celebrate when we celebrate, to have those kind of people around us to love. And to know that, 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 that you made that possible for us to have true friendship one day, pure friendship one day by going to the cross. And that we can have purer friendship now by knowing your gospel, preaching your gospel, loving others. We thank you for this. May we worship you for that and many other things now. In Jesus' name, amen. So what we're going to do right now is we're going to stand up. Everybody stand up.